Good morning and welcome to West Seattle Christian Church. Pastor Worth here and uh, we are about to jump into like week seven or eight of our, uh, our epic story series. If you're new with us, I want to say welcome. If not, welcome back. Um, we are officially uh, a couple weeks into being in phase two. So we're going to have some announcements coming forward about um, micro gatherings. You'll see those on our Facebook page, on our blog, and in our weekly e-newsletter called Now You Know. So if you want to keep apprised of what we're doing there, you want to uh, check all of those sources and uh, get on our mailing list. So um, enough about announcements. That's about all I have to say. And um, we're going to jump right in here. So the epic story is basically we're trying to get a glimpse of the overarching narrative of what God is trying to tell us about himself in the scriptures. Uh, so today we're gonna move forward in that story uh, to uh, the person of Jesus and right up to his crucifixion. And yeah, we're going all the way to there. Uh, but to do this, we're gonna do something unique. We're gonna go all the way back to where we started in Genesis chapter one, again, where we started many weeks ago. And many of you are like, wait, why are we going all the way back there. Yeah, we're going to do that again. And uh, the reason, there's a big reason for that. So I want you to hang with me. Genesis chapter one. Uh, and you can flip there in your Bible. We're not going to read uh, many of the scriptures. I'm just going to kind of encapsulate what's going on there. But uh, we have this creation story. God takes chaos that is going on and he begins speaking order into that chaos. And the story tells us about these six days right at the very beginning, six days where God does his work, six days where he separates land from water, he separates light from darkness, he uh, separates the waters above from the waters below, and then he fills those spaces with his creation. And, and at the end of the sixth day, it culminates with his creation of man and woman, male and female, otherwise known as humankind. And at the end of every one of those days of creation, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, it, it's actually not on day two, but that's a minor detail and you can go look it up, <laughs> go check it out yourself. But on each of those days, uh, but not on day two, but twice on day three, God says, it is good. It is good. And he makes something. So he makes something and he's like, ooh, that's good. And he gets all done and he makes humankind. And when, and when he does that, when he makes humankind, he says, basically, the translation is, oh, yeah, that's real good. That's what he says when he gets to the creation of humankind. And at the end of day six, God steps back at the very end of those six days, and it's done. It's finished. It's complete. There's nothing more. He basically says, there's nothing more that I could do. God knows when to stop. You know, I've heard this said before that um, when you think about all of the great artists throughout the centuries, thinking about the Michelangelo's, the Donatello's, the Raphael's, <laughs> you know, all those Ninja Turtles, just kidding. Um, but all of those artists out there, the Da Vinci's, um, they had one thing in common. And uh, that, I mean, think about this, Michelangelo, his David, that statue, at some point, he is sitting there with a hammer and a chisel and he's chipping away and he's creating this great piece of art. And at some point he says, you know, he's gotta be thinking, if I do one more tack here, 
it'll ruin it. it it'll just, it'll, maybe it could crumble, maybe it'll just deface what he's done and he has to start completely over. Um, one more brush stroke on the Mona Lisa and, and it's ruined, right? The great artists knew when to stop. Artists know when to be done. God knew when to be done at the end of day six. Um, there's another way to think about this. You want to know why, why cancer is so dangerous? Why it, why it is such a ruthless thing? It's because it doesn't know how to stop. It just keeps on replicating and creating itself over and over. It's not static. It's never ending. It's dynamic. That is why it's so hard to cure it. And that is why it is so destructive. God knows when he's done with creation. When you go back and read that story, he knows when he's done. There's nothing more that can be done here. And then he looks at this humankind that he created, his companions in this great creation project. And he says, now I want you to enjoy this rest with me. And on day seven, God does what? He rests. He takes what is called a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest. And he invites Adam and Eve to just enjoy creation. This is why we still love to do this. He, he says, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. It's not a static thing. Like there's still, there's still an ongoing project and I want you to partner with me in this. It's dynamic. How are you going to order it? We're going to build some stuff, be fruitful and multiply. There's this call that's like, hey, join me in taking all of this creation somewhere. Join me in taking it there. I can't wait to see what we get to do together. But six days of completed work, a statement that it is done, it is finished, it is complete, and then this invitation to join him in this kind of restful bliss, restful enjoyment of the creation. By the way, that invitation still extends to you and to me today. I know the world has changed. It's not the same world as Genesis chapter 1 when everything was fresh and new. It's all messed up now. It is, it's broken. Humanity is broken. And yet there is still this invitation where God says, trust that the fundamental nature of all of this is good. There is an inherent goodness to it because he created it. Trust that through all of the chaos and all of the brokenness in this world, trust that, that what God is doing with it, he is, there is something somewhere good that he is taking this story. And he's basically like, I want you to rest and be able to be okay with that because I made it and I know where it's headed. All right, so here's why we've gone over all of that again. It seems that when you get to the authors of the Gospels in the New Testament, in some way, shape, or form, they keep wanting to tie what they're talking about in the Gospels of Jesus back to this creation narrative in Genesis. And here, here's what I mean by that. Imagine a week. A week is what? It's seven days. Imagine a week, seven days, where Jesus enters Jerusalem to bring order out of the chaos. There's spiritual corruption. There are the leaders at the top of, uh, of the priesthood that is corrupt, the Sadducees. Um, and, and we actually spent this last year, you can go back and listen to our messages, 
where we, we walked through the season of Lent looking at a different day during that Holy Week, that last week of Jesus's life that leads up to his death, burial, and resurrection. So there's a week that he's there for seven days trying to bring order out of chaos. And every day he speaks some type of order. Every day has work that he does. And at the end of day six, on Friday night, what is it that Jesus cries out when he's on that cross at the very end, at the end of day six? What does he cry out? It is finished. I want to compare these two passages, the Genesis chapter, uh, the Genesis account, the creation account, and then what is going on in some of the Gospels. And so I'm going to choose one of them. I think this is the one that is just the most specific and implicit in its goal to connect the two. I think all of them do to some degree, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but John really makes this point, and you're going to see this in just a minute. John chapter 19, if you want to turn there with me, John chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 28, which says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all now was now finished, he said to, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He's, he's on the cross. He says, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So twice in this passage, there's a reference to the word finished. Knowing that it had been finished is what it says at first. And then it says, and Jesus says, it is finished. And you can read that in your, in your Bible or look it up online. Again, I, I recommend Bible Gateway for all of the additional helps that it can give you um, in doing research and that kind of thing, doing your own study. Um, so as a Jew, if you were reading this story, say you're one of uh, a member of a church that Paul has planted somewhere in the Roman Empire after this has happened, and you're hearing about this person of Jesus, and you are a Jewish person that Paul is reading this to or giving this account of, if you would have heard this, you would immediately... Uh, hearkened back to the first word, use of this word, which if you're a good Jew, you've been brought up in the knowledge of the Torah, the first five books of scripture, um, the Pentateuch, and you would have known Genesis like the back of your hand, okay? You would have heard these stories over and over and over again. And that refrain that God says on the sixth day that it is finished, if you would have heard this story about Jesus coming into Jerusalem and he gets to the end of that sixth day and he says it is finished as he is uh, on the cross, you would have immediately picked up on this connection. Genesis chapter 2, if we go back there, um, just start right at the very beginning of that chapter. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, from all his work that he had done. I just find this story really interesting because on the Friday night of the creation story, this one in Genesis 2, the Friday night, we don't ever think about it that way, but there's six days, right? So on the Friday night of the creation story, uh, God sat back and he said, it's finished. It's finished. And what does he do the next day? He rests. But on the Friday night of the, of the crucifixion story of Jesus's, of Jesus's story headed towards the cross, on day six, when he is on the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. What does he do on Saturday? He rests. Yeah. 
he'll rest on Saturday. Um, and you'll say, well, well yeah, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of talking about rest. In fact, Paul uses that descriptor uh, of rest going to your final rest. We talk about death as our final resting place, right? And Paul uses that in the scriptures in his letters to the, to, to the early church in our scriptures. So there's this whole idea of God resting on the seventh day. It's almost like the gospel authors, especially John, are intentionally trying to, they're trying to teleport us back to this creation story. And John, in particular, he is definitely doing this without a doubt. And we've talked about this before. Uh, last year, we had a whole other sermon series where we were talking about the I am statements, and we were taking most of those out of the book of John. And we've talked about this before. Um, throughout John's gospel, he keeps drawing these parallels, like Here's what's going on in Jesus's life. Here's what's going on in the creation story. There, throughout his gospel, he, he talks about miracles. And there are seven miracles prior to Jesus's death in the gospel of John. Water to wine. He says, uh, when he says, here's water to wine. Here's this miracle. And he says, this was the first miracle. That's how he describes it in John. Then the second miracle, he heals the official's son. And he says, this is the second miracle. And we're like, thanks, right? Well, then he proceeds to tell these other miracles that happen, but he stops counting. He stops laying it out for you. He stops, he doesn't say, and this was the third miracle. He doesn't say that. He says, number one, number two. This is a very Jewish way of saying, Psst, start counting the miracles. Start counting them right now. So the culmination of these miracles, if, as you follow them, the seventh miracle ends up landing on the raising of who? Not Jesus. It's the person of his friend, Lazarus. The seventh miracle is this raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's this great culmination. You think about the parallel from the scriptures. God creates mankind. That's the last thing that he does. And then the last thing Jesus does, this last great miracle, is he breathes life into a man and brings him back. John is being very, very specific here. He is paralleling these two stories. This seventh miracle, this raising of Lazarus, meaning that after the death and burial of Jesus, his resurrection is the first miracle of what? Jesus' resurrection is the first miracle of a new creation, completely other. There's this whole new creation story. And I want to look at that resurrection story for just a second. Um, starting in John chapter 20, verse 11, I'm going to read that to you, and you can follow along with me. It says this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she, stood, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. <laughs> okay, let's stop for a minute. The gardener. I mean, come on. To quote another person's joke here, the actual Greek here is wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He's saying the gardener, like the gardener of all the things that John could include. Really, we have a woman in a garden with a gardener. Do you see the parallelism here? What is this story calling you back to? Creation. 
Genesis, without a doubt. This is one of the things John is trying to do. But back to the story. She says to him, sir, if you, if, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Actually, if you go back and read, this is another good reason to read Bible Gateway. Just a side note here. If you go back and read this text, the words in, your, in the original text in the Greek, he said to him in Aramaic, that's not in there. It's actually not in there. That's just an attempt to kind of westernize uh, the text there and, and take away his Jewishness or something like that. I don't know. But he says, she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's this intimate form of teacher. She has this moment at the tomb, which John directly connects to the creation story. So John, at the very least, is being very intentional out of all the gospel writers. He's trying to pull us back to this parallel between Genesis on one hand and the creation story and the crucifixion and what Jesus is up to in creating this new creation. So I wanna take a moment to consider this idea of resting because it's weird. It's a weird way to think about uh, the life of Jesus during that Passion Week, his death, burial, and his resurrection. But on Saturday, it's a weird, weird way to think about uh, the tomb and Jesus in it as him resting. And I haven't heard any sermons. I, I mean, we have, I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I really haven't had any sermons preached to me about what's going on on Saturday while Jesus is in the tomb. So this is something for us to wrestle with, but I wonder about this idea of God resting. It goes all the way back to Genesis, and, uh, and, the, and the rest of the story kind of unfolds there. As, as he looked forward, here's the deal, like God, right way back at the beginning, imagine him looking forward at all of our mistakes, at all of our sin and our history, and he's, he can see, because he's God, he can see the whole compilation of the darkness and the brokenness and the suffering of this world we're in and in the decades before us and the centuries before us and in the centuries to come. He can see all of it. Sometimes I think we just wanna breeze through the story and I think sometimes at each page turn in our scriptures, of, and we're looking at the narrative and we imagine God going, oh no, they messed up again. They did it again. What am I gonna do now? We treat it like that. And, he, and we're like, oh, he has to come up with another solution. But not, and I don't say that to take away, that, that say that's not the way it is. But I mean, he can see it all from way back then. And I don't want to take away God's emotion um, that we're told about in the scriptures, that he's angry about these mistakes and this suffering and the brokenness and the way humankind breaks down and, and comes at each other and against each other. He's angry about it and he's disappointed. But to imagine he's just reacting, like in the moment, oh no, they did it again, you know? That is just one more Greek way of thinking about this instead of this Jewish way. That's basically looking at, at this story as if, really like it's Greek mythology, where in Greek mythology, something happens and the gods get angry, right? And they react and they like strike someone down or whatever. The, that, that idea, of like imagining God like, oh no, what am I going to do? That's really more like Greek mythology than really the story we read in the scriptures about this God who's not angry and who created us as Tov Meod, really good. I think our journey, I think God is looking at our journey and he's saying, I, I see 
all of this that you're going to do and what you have done. Remember the redemption cycle we talked about last week? You know, does he not get it? Um, I think he does. And I think he's like, listen, my love is bigger than all of that. And that's not to minimize my sin and your sin. That's not to minimize the unbelievable tragedies that have happened throughout human history. You know, the genocides and the wars and the crusades and the holocausts, all of those things. It doesn't minimize any of, any of that. But instead, how much bigger is God's love than anything that we have ever experienced? How much bigger is it? I wonder if God's response to all of the chaos of human history has just been to rest, to rest, because he knew it, he knew it back then. And he's like, I, I need to rest. And he's like, in that rest, I'm telling you, my love is bigger than that. His love is bigger than that. Yeah, we, you might be saying, yeah, you, Jesus, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. And I wonder if part of the message of the cross on Saturday in the crucifixion story where Jesus rested, nobody else did. The disciples were freaking out. They were panicking. Pilate probably couldn't sleep. Jesus' mom couldn't sleep. I'm sure of it, you know. All of his disciples were probably just completely agitated. I know many of you have experienced feelings like that where your body just buzzes because you can't go to sleep because of what's happened to you on some given day because of some situation or scenario. It's tragedy. It's grief. It's despair. They are despairing. And while they're doing that, Jesus, God in the flesh, is resting. He's resting. And I want to end it there. We're going to talk about this next week. And I'm going to leave you with just this one last thought. Jesus is saying to us, I think, just give me everything you've got, friends. Give me everything you've got. Everything that is inside you, the forces that are outside of you, the massive amount of stress the massive amount of anxiety that we have, the disappointments, the shame, the failure. He says, give me everything you've got, my friends, because my love is bigger than that.